Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon. Uh, the purpose of a live broadcast is so we can interact with our listeners in real time. If you wish to call in with questions you have about the Bible or the Christian faith, uh, or if you want to call in to disagree with the host, you know, most Christian radio shows are not live. And therefore, if you hear something that you don't agree with, you can't very easily, you know, call in. You can't, you can't call in at all, actually. You could write a letter to them and say you disagree, but, but then you won't reach the same audience that heard them make their statement. You'll just reach the people at their offices. So it's nice to have an <clears throat> opportunity, if you hear something you disagree with here, to call in and uh, set the record straight, balance, comment, do whatever you feel is necessary to the same audience that heard the, uh, the uh, uh, perceived error. So we have a couple of lines open still. Oops, one of them, we have one left open right now. At this number, 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And most of you, if you're regular listeners, know this, but some may be listening for the first time and or have been away a long time and don't know this. But tomorrow night... Uh, we are having, uh, well, there will be a, uh, on YouTube, streamed live, a debate between myself and one of our regular callers, whose name is Max, the atheist. That's not his real name. He's not really named Max or the atheist, uh, but that's his, his online, or uh, his on-air name. So uh, regular listeners know of Max, the atheist. He calls from time to time, and he wished to have a debate, and we will. We're going to debate the question, is Christianity true tomorrow night? The time of that debate, and it'll be streamed live, uh, is 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. So we have listeners all over the world, so do the calculation for what time that is for you. But Pacific time, 5 p.m. tomorrow. And if you're interested, there is a, uh, there's information at our website and on our Facebook page that shows how to uh, find that on YouTube, how to log in to, or you know, go to the right page to, uh, to view that. So that's tomorrow night. Our website, of course, is thenarrowpath.com. That's thenarrowpath.com. And the website, or the, the Facebook page is uh, Steve Gregg, The Narrow Path. So uh, you can find log on information there for tomorrow night's debate. And uh, that's about all I have to announce. Let's talk to Dave calling from Wisconsin. Dave, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you, sir. Um, my question is: is um, I've been a, I've been a, a Christian for many years, and I've heard opinions on suicide. I've never really read anything or found anything um, that really truly tell me that the mind of God or you know the insights from about. I mean, it's one wanting your insights on how you feel that God feels about suicide or what He thinks about suicide. Um, or biblically, I just I've never seen anything about it, and um, okay. I recently lost a very good friend to suicide. He was I'm sorry, seeking God, and I just uh, I'd like to be able to answer some questions. Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, of course, to take human life without justification is a sin, uh, and therefore God is against it. Uh, suicide is an act of just that kind. You take a human life without justification. Now, a person might say, well, if it's my life, 
why shouldn't I be free to take my life? Uh, well, the, yeah, I guess if it was your life, that might be a good argument, but it's not. Uh, you didn't give it to yourself. You didn't create it. You didn't purchase it. Nothing about it really belongs to you except you've been entrusted with it. God is the giver of your life, and he still owns it. In fact, especially if you're a believer, if you're a believer in Christ, the Bible says you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So you are something of value that God purchased. And for you to take something that God purchased of value and destroy it is, is very displeasing to him. Now, a secondary question would be, if a person commits suicide, will they go to heaven or hell? Now, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, and for the simple reason that not everyone who commits suicide is in exactly the same condition with God, I think. There are people who have walked with God and loved God, and uh, you know they're sometimes not in their right mind. A lot of times they're kind of messed up on painkillers because they've got some kind of a disease that's, that, that's, be, that's being managed by doctors, and they, you know, they do something that's not quite characteristic of themselves. Uh, or they have a weak moment. I, you know, I'm not the judge. God, God is the judge of that. Uh, certainly, I will say this. I would not wish for the last thing I do in this life before going to face God to be something that God detests being done. Uh, now, of course, we all do things that God detests, and therefore we count on the grace of God, we who believe in Christ. And, uh, and we know that there will be people who are indeed in heaven who who have done many things that God detests. But uh, all I'm saying is a true Christian doesn't want to do anything that God detests. A, a true Christian wants to please God. That's, in fact, one of the truest marks that a person has repented and has been converted. They have a new nature, a new heart that's inclined toward pleasing God. And therefore, if a person's truly a Christian, the, the very contemplation of doing anything that God detests is abhorrent and uh, uh, and certainly unattractive. Uh, on the other hand, even Christians have moments where they are weak or foolish and do bad things. So I, you know, I'm not the one to judge that. Uh, all I can say is, if anyone is hearing this answer, they have not yet committed suicide. Uh, if any are contemplating committing suicide, let me just say this, God is not okay with that. And, uh, you know, one, one thing about suicide that is different from other sins is suicide is the last sin you will ever commit in this life. And, uh, and that means it's the last thing you will do before you go and face God. And, uh, and therefore, I can't imagine anyone so foolish who would contemplate that reality and say, yeah, well, I think I'm going to do that anyway. Um, that's a, that's a terribly foolish thing to do and, and an evil thing to do. I'd also point out one reason that it's wrong is not only that you're destroying something that God owns and values. Uh, just like if I came into your house and took your most valuable things and just smashed them on the ground, you know, that'd be a, a, a small thing in comparison to destroying a human body that God purchased and owns and that he has a, a plan and a purpose for and say, well, I don't care about your plan or purpose. I'm just going to end it right here because I want to. And that's the other thing about it. It's an ultimately very, very selfish thing to do. Nobody would commit suicide unless they thought at that moment that this will uh, relieve pain, which they no, they no longer want to endure. Uh, psychic pain, physical pain, something. Uh, a person would never contemplate suicide unless they just decided, I've had enough. I can't take any more. I want to relieve myself of this struggle. 
which means they're looking out for themselves and no one else, obviously. They might pretend that they do this because of, you know, they've got a broken heart from somebody they love or something like that. But actually, no, it's, it's an entirely selfish act. And more than selfish, it's a horribly cruel act because anyone who knows you, whether they're your friends, your parents, your children, uh, your siblings, anybody who knows you, people who go to church with you, anyone who knows you and even likes you a little bit is going to be devastated if you do this. And uh, in fact, I really believe that's one of the reasons some people do commit suicide. Some people do, do it to punish those people, which makes them particularly horrible, horrible people themselves. You know, if you say, I'm going to do something horrendously hurtful to God in order to hurt my parents or my children or somebody else who, uh, or my ex or somebody like that. Uh, it's just, it's just plain horrible. I mean, anyone who would do that is simply not thinking of anyone except themselves or not caring about anyone but themselves. So how would God feel about that? Well, how would anyone feel about that who's got any decency? They would be totally opposed to it, and God is totally opposed to it. So that's the most I can say. Now, what, what God may do in the judgment toward people who, who do this, well, that's between him and them. But uh, it is certainly something that no wise person would ever wish to have the last act they perform before facing God. All right. Well, thank you, sir. All right, Dave. Thank you for your call. Uh, Don from Vancouver, Washington. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, hi, Steve. Hey, speaking of debates and everything, which there have been a lot of conversation about that, quite a while back you had a debate with James White. Uh And uh, in that debate— Five debates. Five debates. All right. I remember yeah. listening to three or four. I didn't know there were five, though. Uh, is that the same time, or was that subsequent? Or, or they were five the successive. Case? They were five successive days on this program. So we had an okay. hour long, hour long debate five days in a row. Monday. I might miss a couple. I should listen to that. Anyway, in the debates, I, I thought he was not trying to show his side, but rather win the debate. I thought he used techniques like running out the clock and asking you questions that required a lot of time from you, things like that. So I I was not pleased about that. But my question is, do you plan or is there anything on the books or maybe in the future here where you would debate him again? I would love to hear another debate. Well, I don't know if I would object to debating him again. There's not many people I would not debate. Uh, Certainly there's nobody I'm afraid to debate, and I don't know if – but there there are kinds of people that I'm not sure it's worth debating. You okay. know, I had, a, I had a debate last Friday with somebody uh, that I don't think I would debate again, not because, not because I'd have any fear of doing so, but because uh, I don't think it was worth listening to. Yeah, um, he, he, was, you know. he was very amiable and everything, but he, he, was, uh, he just didn't do a very good job. I agree. Yes, and, and I felt like uh, now, now uh, James White, of course, was even a little different because I didn't think he did a very good job. But more than that, he wasn't amiable at all. You know, I, I, I personally do think that James White is the one Calvinist that I've debated who um, I don't think we'd probably enjoy each other's company very much. I know I've, I've debated several, uh, you know, well-known Calvinists, and I've liked them all I, as persons. I've, I've, in, I've, I've liked them. And uh, I've spent, in some cases, I had at least one meal with them in most cases. But... Um, but yeah, uh, but James White, I don't think he would like me, and I don't know that I'd enjoy his company either. So I, I'd much rather debate somebody that I like uh, 
it's it's so much nicer, you know, when you're just when you're not when you don't have personalities, you know, bumping against each other, and you've really got just just the facts, yeah. you know, just dealing with the okay. facts. And, and I also uh, heard, listened to some debate he had, I think, with a Muslim. It's, it's quite a few years ago now. And I thought that rather than trying to win a person to Christ and and that, he was just trying to win the debate, too. So I, I agree with you on that. I can totally understand. Steve, thanks very much. Well, Don, thank you. Thank you. Now, I, I mentioned, I think, yesterday that uh, a debate with Dr. Uh, Michael Brown is being planned between uh, me oh. and him. Uh, I, I heard you talking and thought, yeah. uh, well, I hope that happens. I didn't know that. Well, well, I do too. And and I just want to say this: I really do like Michael Brown. I like him personally, and uh, you know, we do have an area of serious disagreement about the subject of Israel. But but uh, I think he's a very amiable and cordial and intelligent man, and and he's just the kind of man I I enjoy debating because uh, I just can't imagine. That, but that wouldn't be very uh, very high level debate and, oh, I, and look for, you know, I definitely look yeah. forward to that then yeah that, i just heard that may happen in the fall okay i i will certainly get it listen to it okay, we'll definitely Steve, publicize so it for everything okay don god bless yeah. bye now okay bye-bye mm-hmm. all right uh let's see jimmy from missouri welcome to the narrow path thanks for calling hi steve nice to meet you thank you I, uh, good to hear from you i recently yeah thank you I recently read your book, The Empire of the Risen Sun, and um, just so thankful for that book. It's really changed my life. But oh, my wonderful. question, yeah, my question today um, has to do with Romans 11 and Hebrews 6. Okay. I'm trying to reconcile uh, verse 23 in Romans 11 with mm-hmm. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You know where I'm going, so I'll just let you speak okay well uh romans eleven twenty three tells us that the the jews whom paul said had been broken off of the olive tree because of their unbelief paul said uh if they also do not continue in unbelief in other words if they begin to believe they will be grafted in again now what Paul has pointed out is he's, he's using the analogy of a tree, an olive tree, which he has borrowed from Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, which represents Israel. And he says the branches of the, that tree are the individuals in, that, in Israel. And, of course, the natural branches that were kind of born there were the Jews. Uh, and then there's also unnatural branches that have been grafted in, and that's Gentiles. Now, he says that the unbelieving Jews are like branches that have been broken off the tree, which means, of course, that the believing Jews, like Paul himself, still are part of the tree. The tree of Israel contains the believing remnant of Israel. And then he says, and to that remnant have been added Gentiles, like his readers. Now, he does say, just as the Gentiles who came to faith in Christ can be grafted into the tree and have been, so even those Jews who have not believed in Christ and are broken off the tree can be grafted in if they do what the Gentiles did, namely believe. If they come, if they don't remain in unbelief, if they believe in Christ, well, they can as easily be put back on the tree as the Gentiles have been put in. In fact, Paul says maybe even more naturally because that that was their tree to begin with and the Gentiles have been grafted in against nature. So 
So, of course, God could graft the natural branches back in if they believe. So that's what he's saying there. Now, when you talk about Hebrews 6, I assume you mean verses 4 through 6, where it talks about those who've known and uh, Christ and have fallen away deliberately. Uh, it says in Hebrews that it's, uh, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Uh, so this would be not in... Uh, this would not be in conflict with Romans 11 because Paul in Romans 11 is not talking about Christians who have fallen away. He's talking about Jewish people who never were Christians. Uh, they, you know, they have had apparently the opportunity to believe in Christ, but because of their unbelief, they're removed from the Israel tree. Uh, but these, this is not a case of Christians who have fallen away. Now, he does say in Romans 11 that Christians can fall away. He tells his Gentiles, readers, uh, he says in verse 22, Romans 11, 22, he says, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, meaning the Jewish unbelievers, severity, but toward you, goodness. I mean, you Gentiles who have been added in, God has shown goodness. Then he says, If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So Paul indicates that those who have been cut off don't have to remain cut off if they don't remain in unbelief. But he also says that the Gentiles being grafted in don't have to remain there if they, if they lose their faith, if they don't continue with Christ. So he's basically saying uh, a believer can become an unbeliever and be removed, or an unbeliever can become a believer. But in Hebrews, it's not talking about that situation. It's talking about people who were Christians, and almost certainly Jewish Christians, because Hebrews is written to Jewish people. And he talks about those who have known the good word of God and have tasted of the age, powers of the age to come and of the, of the Holy, have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, these are, of course, people who are Christians. It says, if they fall away, or it says those who have had those circumstances and have fallen away, is the way it reads in the Greek, uh, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, Paul didn't say otherwise than that in Romans 11, because the people he's talking about who can come back never really were Christians to begin with. Paul's talking about people who were regenerated, people who had the Holy Spirit, um, people who had tasted the powers of the, of the uh, Christian age um, and, and of the Word of God and of the gift of God. So Paul's talking about a different situation there. That is a, a Christian who falls away is in a very different situation than somebody who's never been a Christian. And, and, you know, they are ultimately uh, convertible. Um, Peter says the same thing pretty much in Second Peter chapter 2 when he talks about people who fall away. Uh, it says in verse 20, 2 Peter 2, 24, if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So it's better for them not, they were better off before they, before they were believers because they had not yet understood or believed the gospel and then rejected it. But once they have known and believed, if they reject it, they are not in the same condition. C.S. Lewis said it's like the difference between a virgin and a divorcee. Um, you know, a, a virgin has never experienced marriage. A divorcee has and has chosen not to stay with it, let's say. And therefore, 
the divorcee is not in the same pristine condition uh, and probably does not look at the whole subject of marriage with the same uh, romantic dreaminess as a virgin might. Um, and therefore, you know, the virgin might be more quickly uh, eager to, to get married than, than a divorcee would be. And that's, that's kind of the same thing. A person who has never been a Christian, when they first hear about Christ, they may joyfully accept him like, like the seed that fell on shallow stony ground in the parable Jesus told. They hear the gospel, they receive it with joy, and they spring up and, and have a good time until something, in the case of the parable, persecution or something, causes them to, uh, to fall away. People do fall away, but the writer of Hebrews is saying if they fall away, then they're in a different circumstance than they were before. That is, they've hardened their hearts against the truth. They have rebelled against light. And for such a person, it's, uh, it's all, it, the writer says it's impossible to renew them. He, that's a, a, a term that we could dispute what that actually means, but it certainly is saying it's at least all but impossible to, to bring them back. And so, and maybe entirely impossible, he means. But the point is that it's not uh, in contrast. It's not really a different uh, it's not a different doctrine than what Paul teaches in Romans 11. It's actually a, a, an entirely different situation in the two circumstances. So that's how I would uh, you know, juxtapose those two things. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Jimmy. Good to hear from you. All right. Let's talk to uh, Robert in Sacramento, California. Robert, welcome. Hey, yes, sir. How are you doing, Steve? Good, thanks. Yes, sir. I, I called because uh, you know I I go to an apostolic church, and uh, their belief is if you don't speak in tongues, then you are not safe. And and uh, also in the the Word of God, it says you know that those who serve God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So mm-hmm. I want to get your 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 take on that and what you gather from that scripture, and and if the what if what they say indeed is true. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, what they say is not indeed true. The Bible does not ever make speaking in tongues a condition for salvation. In fact, the Bible doesn't ever necessarily say that everybody who's saved will speak in tongues. Um, And if they do, it's not what saves them. Uh, It's simply a gift of the Holy Spirit, like any other gift of the Holy Spirit that they might have, which might be given to them for their benefit or for the more properly for the benefit of the body of Christ. So I, you know, I think that's mixing up a, a gift, which is a, a bonus for being saved that you receive. Uh, they're making that a condition for salvation. That simply goes far beyond anything the Bible says. Now, Jesus did say in, in John 4, what is it, verse 24, I think, that God desires people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And while it is true that worship in spirit in certain contexts might speak of speaking in tongues, as, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about how if he prays in the Spirit, uh, you know, no one understands him. So he's talking about praying in tongues. And then he says, therefore, I will pray in the Spirit, and I'll pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and with the understanding also. This sounds like it means I will both pray and sing in tongues, but I'll also pray and sing not in tongues. But, uh, and, and the former, he calls in the Spirit. We might say, well, praying and singing, that's worshiping. And if Paul says he's going to pray and worship in the Spirit, then that must be worshiping in the Spirit. Therefore, 
if he's talking about tongues, then that must be what praying and worshiping in, in, in the Spirit is, is tongues. Well, I mean, Paul in that passage, 1 Corinthians 14, makes it very clear that the subject under discussion is a contrast between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, and that when he uses the term, I will pray in the Spirit or sing in the Spirit, that this is, in that context, a reference to in tongues. Uh, and he says there, you know, when I pray with the Spirit, my spirit prays, but my, uh, my understanding is unfruitful. So there's a specific activity that does not engage his mind, uh, but in, engages only his spirit. And that's what he, he's referring to there. Now, it's not necessarily um, reasonable to say that every time you find the expression in the spirit in other contexts, especially from other writers, that they would be thinking of it that way because it's not the only way, way it can be understood. Even Paul elsewhere uses the word in the spirit differently than that. For example, in, in Romans 8, uh, he says, I think it's in verse, uh, I don't know, 9 or so, uh, he said that it's, um, if you are uh, in Christ, you're, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. Now, in the spirit, as opposed to in the flesh, is not referring to tongues at all. And there's many activities that are said to be done in the spirit, which are not likely to mean tongues. So uh, I'm not prepared to argue uh, on their behalf about this verse where Jesus said God wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth, that this means he wants them to pray in tongues. Uh, Jesus, by the way, had never, never mentioned speaking in tongues until after his resurrection, if the last 12 verses of Mark are authentic. Apart from that, Jesus never addresses that subject at all. And nowhere in the Bible is speaking in tongues ever referred to as a condition of salvation. Uh, it may be a benefit that saved people receive. It's not a condition for being saved. So I would fully disagree on that subject completely. Steve? Thank you for your call. Hey, I need to take a break here. I'm sorry. Uh, you've been listening to The Narrow Path. We have another half hour coming, so don't go away. We are listener-supported. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be right back. If you've been listening to The Narrow Path for very long, you know how much it has enhanced your study and understanding of Scripture and possibly your whole Christian life. Don't you think all your friends should benefit from the program as you have? You help to partner with us in impacting the body of Christ when you tell all your friends to listen to The Narrow Path. If you have not done so, visit the website, thenarrowpath.com, and discover all that is available for your learning pleasure. Welcome back to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour. Our lines are full, so I don't know if I'm going to give up the phone number right now, but if, if the lines are opening up in a little later uh, in the half hour, <clears throat> I will give that number out again. Many of you already have it if you're regular listeners. Uh, my apologies to our last caller at the end of the first segment. Uh, as I was uh, pushing the button to hang up the call and to go to the break, uh, he, he spoke again. And just, just as I was pushing the button, I heard my name. Uh, it sounded like he might have wanted to follow up. On, on his question, uh, though we had answered his first question. I don't know if he had a second question or not, but my apologies, I didn't mean to cut you off. 
All right. We did have to go to the break in any case, but that was I don't I didn't want to be rude. Uh, let's talk to Jay in Seattle. Jay, is this you my leave friend? The Lord, leave the God. Hey. Hi, Steve. Hey, Jay. Uh, question. In your opinion, is it wrong or heresy to teach uh, the God Lord of taking responsibility of his actions? Reading the book of Luke, Zacchaeus was told along with the disciples, quote, salvation has come to this household. He, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham, unquote. Is it heresy to the New Testament gospel to present the Son of Man and God simply taking responsibility for themselves? In your opinion, is this what the Father God teaches his people? The importance of us taking responsibility of their own actions, is this the good Lord showing and teaching his believers to be responsible for our own personal actions? Is this salvation or only for Zacchaeus? Take answer on radio. All right. Well, uh, first of all, I don't think that Jesus says uh, that Zacchaeus was saved because he took responsibility for his own actions, uh, although that was a good thing for him to do. I think the fact that Zacchaeus took responsibility for his own actions was an evidence that he was repentant and that he believed. I mean, clearly, Jesus had just spent a, had a meal with him. We don't, we don't read anything about the conversation they had, but Zacchaeus was clearly totally won over to Christ, so that at the end of the meal, Zacchaeus stood up and said, you know, I'm going to give away half of my goods to the poor, and if I've wronged anyone in my business of tax collecting, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. Now, you know, he's not likely to say that unless he's mighty impressed with Jesus. Uh, and he was impressed with Jesus. So I think uh, this kind of thing, offering to make restitution for things that are done wrong, is what we'd call an evidence of repentance. Remember, John the Baptist said that he didn't want to baptize the Pharisees unless he first saw fruits of repentance from them. And this is the kind of fruit we're talking about, you know, that you not only say you repent, but you're going to change and try to, as, to the degree that you can, undo the damage you've done. Now, this truly is taking responsibility for your actions, but taking responsibility for your actions is not the whole picture of salvation because a person might take responsibility for his actions even if he's an atheist or, or you know, some other anti-Christian religion. Um, so obviously, Jesus is not saying, well, whoever will take responsibility for his actions is, uh, is saved. But he's announcing that salvation has come to that house because he sees in Zacchaeus the evidence of both faith and repentance. And that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that uh, you, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a, saved in the body of Christ, you need to repent and you need to believe. Now, we don't know if Zacchaeus got baptized. It's very likely that he did. But if he did not on that occasion, then he probably did, uh, you know, after Pentecost when when people were coming into the church and being baptized. So, uh, you, know, I don't, you know, if you say, you ask me, is it a heresy to teach that salvation comes by taking responsibility for your actions? I guess that would be a heresy to teach if we're saying that's all that it takes. You know, there is such a thing as surrender to God. There's such a thing as belief in the gospel. These are things that are necessary too. Uh, so, and since it's obvious that people who don't believe and aren't surrendered to God might, for some reason or another, reform their ways 
let's just say someone joins a 12-step program. And one of the steps is that they have to go make restitution or they have to go, you know, they have to take responsibility for themselves. Certainly that's the whole idea in a 12-step program. Well, going through a 12-step program isn't salvation. Not that Christians don't ever do it. It's just that tons of people go through it who aren't Christians and don't become Christians. So, yeah, I mean, that would be a mistake to equate that uh, action of taking responsibility with salvation. On the other hand, I don't see how anyone could possibly be saved without taking responsibility. So that would be a part of it. All right, let's talk to Raven in California. Raven, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, uh-huh. I just want to give a comment in terms of um, suicide and the question the person asks. Um, I would hope no one, you know, would take their life, but we know even a man after God's own heart, you know, David committed an unjustifiable murder. And so murder is murder. So when people ask this question in terms of suicide, people generally say it's murder, it's unforgiving. But if you look at Matthew twelve thirty one and 32, it says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost should not be forgiven unto men. And who yeah, I think that, word right. I think that when he says all sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, he means if it's repented of. You know, I mean, people can repent of every kind of sin and blasphemy and be forgiven. He's not saying that everyone who's out there committing all kinds of sins is automatically forgiven. And you mentioned David. David did commit heinous sins, uh, worthy of death, to be sure. But he also repented. And so the thing that makes a suicide ambiguous is whether the person would have repented or not, because we don't know. Because they, uh, in committing suicide, that's the last act they commit in their life. And that means they don't repent, at least not visibly for us to see, afterward. I guess God alone can see what, whether they repent afterwards or not. But, um, you know, the Catholic Church, for example, considers that uh, suicide is an unpardonable kind of sin. Uh, and that, that is because once you've done it, you can't repent, you can't do anything uh, to to return to God. At least that's how they, they believe it. And many Protestants would say the same thing. So I, I'm not sure that that's true because we don't know whether people repent when they see God, you know, after they've committed suicide. But but we shouldn't assume that they all would because lots of people, uh, you know, don't necessarily repent even when they, when they saw Jesus, when he was on earth, when they saw miracles. You know, there are people whose hearts are hard toward God and therefore we don't have any guarantees that a person who commits suicide is necessarily granted the opportunity to repent afterward. And that's why it's a questionable matter. That's why I said I, I leave the matter with God. He's the one who will judge that. I don't really have any insights into that other than that is a wrong thing to do. And that's what, I mean, the question was asked, what does God think about it? And of course, the answer was, he thinks very, very badly about it. He doesn't like it. It's an evil thing. Uh, Sabrina, also in California, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thank you, Steve, for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am on a new Bible kind of journey, trying to figure things out, and I really enjoy, I have to just say, I I really enjoy your program, kind of like your opening monologue. There really is no other 
show similar to yours. So totally appreciate your one hour you have on the air. Let me stop you there just for a minute, because this is not the only show that you can call into. There are other shows. But what I was saying is that most Christian shows on Christian stations are not live. Uh, you know, they're recorded. Yeah. yeah, so you can't do it. But there are some. I mean, certainly there's the, the Bible Answer Man yeah. program, Hank Hedegraaff Show, and, and there are others, you know, around. But so I'm not saying yeah. we are unique. I'm saying we're unusual in that respect. Go ahead. Yes, very. Um, I love it so much that I actually asked my boss to give me my lunch at 2 p.m. so I could listen to it live. Love it. And I love all your debates. I, I just watched your last one, and I totally agree with you saying you didn't, you didn't really like that guy, or not like that guy so much, but you probably wouldn't debate that guy last week again. Um, I totally felt the same way when I watched that debate. But let me get to my question. I want to just like, yeah, you're awesome. Love it. Um, I have a question about the Quran. I think, have you read it? You know, I have not. I have it on my shelf. I've intended to read it. It's sort of like all those books the Mormons have, the Book of Mormon. and Pro- I, I've intended to read those through, too. I just don't have time. I'm spending too much time reading the Bible. But, uh, but I, right. I would like to read it. I have not read it, no. Okay. So I just wanted some concrete, like, if you know, in fact, because I, I am doing a Bible study with somebody, and she told me yesterday, it actually says in the Quran that, they are, you know, they are told to kill Jews and Christians. I just want to confirm, is it actually written in the Quran? I try to pull it up, and it says it's, oh, that's been taken out of context. It says to kill, like, infidel or not to kill infidels, to kill idolatries. So I just want to know what you, what, what's your take on that? Like, have you heard that? Before? Well, I will say this. Yes, I, I've heard that before, and I'm, I'm sure I've even heard you know, surahs from the Quran quoted by people who were saying this is what it teaches. And it and it did look, I mean, I've heard, I mean, through my lifetime, I've heard lots of people cite the Quran on different things, both favorably and unfavorably. I mean, Christians and Muslims, I've heard both quote things from the Quran. And, and yes, it is my impression that there are surahs in there that do speak of, um, you know, the, the obligation to kill um uh, Christians and Jews. Now, I, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go to the mat about that. If a Muslim wants to call up and say, no, there's not a single thing in the Quran that says that, uh, what, what really is the case, I think, is that the, the uh, Muhammad, uh, there are things that, that come later that were added to the Quran that were not there in the original. And it is thought that the later revelations given to Muhammad uh, they kind of eclipse or out, out you know, they, they, they supersede the earlier things. Just like Christians would say that things in the New Testament supersede laws in the Old Testament. Well, of course, uh, I've heard Muslims say that the earlier things that Muhammad said are not binding if they were, if he said something different later. And that early on, they say, he did advocate killing people who don't uh, who don't buy into their their religion, but that later on some of the later ones in the Quran say uh, no, uh, you you can you can tolerate the people of the books, yeah, that's the Christians and the Jews. Now I'm no expert about this, and I don't I can't tell you what it does or does not say. I've 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 had you know I've seen people line up quotations from the Quran, which I assume were accurately represented, but. Uh, yeah, there are Muslims who 
who see it one way and some who see it another. Obviously, the ones who want to practice Sharia law, the ones who uh, want to practice you know, jihad, uh, they are going to be they're going to take those earlier verses right. uh, very right. seriously. And then there's there's the peace loving Muslims who actually don't want that. And they're they're going to argue, no, you know, the later ones say that's not so. Um, but I will say this, if 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 he said to kill idolaters, and I think he did, that would include Christians as far as Muslims are concerned, because we worship Christ as God. And they believe that that's idolatry because they they believe Jesus oh. was a great they believe Jesus was a great prophet, but they don't believe he was God or the son of God. And therefore, to mm-hmm. elevate him to the level of God would be. Uh, blasphemy and idolatry in their mind. So, um, you know, I, it does seem to me, it does seem to me that there's some ambiguity there, but it, uh, it would be very easy for a person to use the Quran to justify killing uh, Christians, at least. Got it. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your answer. Okay, Sabrina. Thank you for calling. Good talking to you. Uh, Abby in Valley Center, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi. I am so excited to talk to you. I just discovered you like a month ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I want to say ditto to that. what that lady said. I want to say the exact same thing. I am so excited of your teaching. It's been just such a blessing to me and my husband. We've really enjoyed learning um, your like, you know, helping me understand the kingdom of God, like, a lot better, because that's been a, a struggle. I'm like, what does it mean? Because I was dispensational, premillennial, yeah. like, forever. So I yeah. just, like, finally have been, like, are, figured out that that is not what I hold to anymore. And so then I was like, well, what is the kingdom? <laughs> if it's not, like, like, oh, you know, it is future, but, like, you know, you know, you understand that mm-hmm. view. So. Yeah. Anyway, do you have do you but, have the books I've written on the kingdom? I yeah, yeah, I just ordered one and I've listened to all your things online on your uh lectures just the lectures glorious. on the kingdom. I just, mm, yeah. Oh, I just want to say thank you so much for that. And but I I have a thing cuz I'm I'm kind of confused with post-millennial and uh-huh. all-millennial. I I agree with both the views. I think post is awesome, but the verse that says like enter by the narrow gate but the widest mm-hmm. is, and the way is easy, and that leads to destruction, and those entered by are, you know, are many. So that verse, um, yeah. I was listening to Doug Wilson. Have you heard of Doug Wilson? He's big yes. post-millennial. Yes, I debated, yeah. I, I debated him about Calvinism, yeah, three times. Okay, well, I really, I like him. And he, I like I him. Like his... I like him. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he is, he's great, you know, and, yeah. but he trends, he, he interprets this verse different because of his view on the end of the, you know, when the world, uh-huh. he was, mm-hmm. you know, differently. He interprets the verse like that, um, interprets that it's, that it's talking to the Jews, that the Jews have the narrow gate. And so my question is, why do you not interpret that verse that way? And why, why would you not agree with that interpretation that he's, that the context is te- te- speaking to the Jews okay, and not well, like to humanity? Okay, and Jesus said, as you point out in Matthew seven thirteen, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, of course he was talking to Jews, but there's no reason to believe that this principle 
only applies to Jews. But one thing we can say, it only directly applies to the people of his own day because he uses the present tense. He doesn't say there will be few who find it. He says there are few who are finding it. In other words, he's, it's a social commentary on the state of, well, of the Jewish people around him. Um, and yeah. probably he, he could apply it to the pagans, too. I mean, the pagans who weren't Jews, there were few of them that would find it, too, uh, that were finding it. Notice he, he doesn't say there will be few who find it. But in fact, in mm-hmm. Revelation chapter 7, John sees an innumerable company uh, from every nation, kingdom, and tribe who are praising God, apparently in heaven. Uh, it says there's, they can't be numbered. There's so many of them, and they're certainly saved. So they're, you know, the total number of people who will be saved is going to be innumerably large. But at the time that Jesus was speaking, the disciples were under the influence of the rabbinic teachings in the synagogues, and uh, and the and the Pharisees were most of the rabbis, and they were they were uh, they were leading people astray. Jesus said they're blind leaders of the blind. So he said, "There's mm-hmm. few people. Few people are on this on the right way. Few people are finding it. Lots of people mm-hmm. are on the wrong way, and many are on the path to destruction." And I do believe. Uh, I mean, I never heard Doug Wilson speak about this, but I think he's correct in saying its first application. I would not limit it to that, but his first application was to his own people, and that way that leads to destruction, no doubt, is a reference to the fact that the whole nation was going to be destroyed within a generation. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. you know, ex- unless they got off that broad path and start going, following him. Uh, uh-huh. And that would be, of course, true. So in other words, sometimes people will say, well, there won't be a time when there's uh, widespread conversions and, you know, every, you know, almost everyone gets saved because Jesus said there's going to be few people who find it. No, the Bible says there could be an innumerable number of people who find it. But yeah. in his own day, he's, he's, he uses the present tense, not the future tense. He says there are few people finding it, uh, you know. And uh, so he's commenting on to his disciples, don't follow the majority uh, of, of your teachers and your you know, the rabbis and so forth, because they're not finding it. The people who are following them are not finding it. Uh, you can find it, but it's very few who are currently. So don't go with the crowd. Go with me, I think, is probably his best way of understanding that. But not that it wouldn't apply to the Jews. But, but I think Doug Wilson may be saying, because he, he uh, uh, although he's post-millennial and I'm amillennial, we both have the same view about the imminent uh, danger that the Jewish nation was facing when Jesus came and, the, and mm-hmm. the degree to which the teachings both of John the Baptist and Jesus were alluding to that impending disaster. So, you know, the, the way that leads to destruction for the Jewish people at that time was to keep doing what they were doing instead of mm-hmm. doing what Jesus was called to do. Now, about post-millennialism and amillennialism, um, uh, I'm not a post-millennialist, though I have no, I have no dislike for it. Um, yeah, because it's pretty I'm, positive. <laughs> right. It's very positive. And it's uh, and to my mind, it's not impossible, though. I do think there are passages that speak of Jesus coming back to find many people still in rebellion against him. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. at the end of Revelation 20, uh, when the, you know, Satan is loose for a little while, he brings the nations from, uh, from all over the world uh, and mm-hmm. their number is like the sand of the seashore and they're in rebellion against, mm-hmm. uh, against God and coming against his people. 
right up until the moment that Jesus comes back and incinerates them all in Revelation 20 and verse 9. So I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who are not saved when Jesus comes back. The parable mm. of the wheat and the tares is sort of that way too, because the wheat and the tares grow together until the end. And then he sends his angels out and they gather out the tares from among the wheat. And it sounds like, you know, there's plenty of them. Uh, we don't know percentages. It, I, I would not be opposed to the idea that the majority of people could be saved before Jesus comes back, though I, I don't know that the Bible uh, tells us directly that this is so, but I can't think of any reason why it couldn't be so. I don't know, yeah. I don't, I don't know of any limits that are put on the gospel that would prevent it from being received by the majority of people. But the, the prophecies do speak of there being tremendous rebellion against God at the time that Jesus comes back. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm not post-millennial. But I have no emotional grievance with post-millennialism. If it were true, I'd be very happy. What I am is what I'd call a, an optimistic amillennialist. Now, <laughs> amillennialism does not predict whether the world will be better or worse before Jesus comes back. Amillennialism isn't really eschatological at all. It's not really talking about the end times. So uh, you could be an amillennialist and either be pessimistic or optimistic about the end times, you know? And, uh, and I think most amillennialists are pessimistic, but I've always been kind of an optimistic amillennialist. And uh, some post-millennialists have gone on record saying, well, do you know what an, um, uh, an optimistic amillennialist is? That's a post-millennialist who's afraid to come out of the closet. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I don't think I'm afraid to come out of the closet. I just think there are some reasons not to fully embrace post-millennialism based on certain prophetic passages. But I, I embrace it with sympathy. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's, that's awesome. I appreciate you uh, answering my question because I was like kind of wondering, like, what was your view yeah. on that verse? And then I'm, right. I'm just, I appreciate your, your teaching so much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Abby. And say hi to your husband. I'd love to meet you guys sometime. You don't live very far away, I think. Uh, look, we're going to talk next. We only have a few minutes, very few minutes. So we're going to talk to JC from Chandler, Arizona. JC, welcome. Good afternoon, Steve. It's a pleasure to be part of the program. Thank you um, our for joining us. Our ministry out here is blessed and bold as best you can. And uh, wasn't that quite a dinner that Larry and his wife put on for us and Gilbert? That was that was wonderful. That was great. Hey, that was great. Wasn't it? Yeah. My, my question is, uh, I asked you a few weeks ago, but did Jesus raise himself from the dead? or was? And we, we basically concluded it was kind of a team effort. But the more I thought about it, the, the fact that the angel rolled the stone away, um, I think, as, and I don't know why I'm so fascinated by the whole concept of Jesus uh, uh, being raised from the dead, but if Jesus did it under his own power, he wouldn't have needed the angel to roll uh, the stone away. He would have just, I guess, like walked right through, I guess. So it, it seems like, you know, as time went on, um, you know, I guess Jesus' abilities or supernatural presence uh, increased um, so that, yeah, uh, the Father uh, did raise him from the dead, sent the angel. The angel rolled the stone back. And then, you know, Jesus walked out um, as, you know, pretty much a man, deity, slash, you know, any thoughts on that? Well, of course, we don't read of Jesus walking out. We read of the angel moving the stone, and then we read of people arriving there and finding the tomb empty. Uh, so we don't know that Jesus needed the stone moved in order to come out. We know that as you, you know, later that night, he was able to appear in a room 
uh, out of nowhere, apparently, and then disappear uh, before their eyes. It seems like he and the, the rooms were told specifically the doors were locked. So, so he didn't come in the normal way through the doorway. And if he could do that that evening, we don't have any reason to believe he couldn't have done that from the tomb as well. Uh, to my mind, the purpose of the angel moving the stone was not for Jesus to be able to escape, but for the witnesses to be able to get inside and to see. Uh, because you remember when the, the women were on their way to the tomb before they knew he'd risen, they were discussing among themselves, who's going to move the stone? How are we going to get the stone moved so we can see? I mean, they didn't want to just see, they wanted to embalm the body. But the point was, that stone was an obstacle to outsiders. I don't think it'd be an obstacle to Jesus, particularly. At least my thoughts would be that way. I mean, I'm not going to, I wouldn't argue much about that, because it doesn't really, it doesn't make that big a difference to me. But my own way of looking at it would be that uh, the stone had to be moved to let the witnesses see that the tomb was empty because they would not otherwise have been able to move the stone and they couldn't see through it or pass through it as I think probably Jesus could. But, you know, we're not told much about that, which is interesting. Uh, but anyway, thank you for sharing those thoughts. Uh, I might just say that the Narrow Path ministry is uh, on many radio stations and, it, and, uh, and they charge us a lot of money. I mean, they don't just charge us, they charge every ministry. A lot of money. It's just expensive being on the radio. But you notice we don't have any commercial breaks. We don't have any underwriters. We don't have any sponsors. And that's because we don't want any. Uh, we just want to, to keep on the air if the Lord provides. And he has for 27 years. And we hope he will still. We keep adding more stations and that gets more expensive. But we trust that God will provide. If you'd like to help us, we are entirely listener supported. You can write to The Narrow Path. P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Uh, you can also donate from the, the website, though everything at the website can be had for free. But you can donate there if you wish. It's thenarrowpath.com. Don't forget to have a debate with an atheist tomorrow night. You can find that at our website, too, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend.